Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. For more on Walter's music, Devine Dial, thank you for managing WPVMFM in Asheville. And Robin Collier, thank you for managing KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio in Taos. If you would like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. That's a good place to, to find me. And I'd like to remind you that we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to go. Today, I have a returning guest, Gareth Higgins. Gareth lives in Asheville. He also lives in Northern Ireland, and he's an activist, a writer, a fellow who loves the movies. Gareth and I have known each other for quite a while. He's been on this show twice at least, so I've asked him to come back and catch us up on what he's doing. So, Gareth, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. It's good to be here. I'm, I'm hoping we'll be able to repair whatever I did wrong the last two times. Well... I guess we can get out the hammer and the <laughs> screwdriver and some glue and get to work. I don't know. What, what, what shall we repair first? <laughs> I'm noticing we're both wearing solid black T-shirts. Yes, sir. We, 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 look like the, we look like the bad guys in Superman 2. Yeah, that's the in honor of the black T-shirt day. This yeah. is, yeah, I'm declaring it the black T-shirt day. Well, I'm wearing my black T-shirt it's a merino wool t-shirt. I'm wearing a merino oh. wool t-shirt in yes. Manila, which is a tropical place. And the merino wool t-shirt works for me in the heat and the cold because it keeps me warm when it's cold and it keeps me cool when it's warm. It does what the manufacturer promises. How about that? <laughs> is this show sponsored by merino wool? It is sponsored by those <laughs> all those merino wool sheep out there. Yay, merino wool sheep. <laughs> Here's to the sheep. I have to say, we're going to find a way to segue this into matters of substance. And actually, merino wool is one of those things like lasagna in my life. Until I was 17 years old, I would have said that I hated lasagna, right? Would, would you like to guess what I did at 17 years old that changed my mind about lasagna? You probably ate some lasagna cooked by somebody who was a genius chef that turned you around for the rest of your life. Even more mundane than that, because it was cooked by my mother, who is a genius chef. The answer is, what happened when I was 17 that changed my mind about lasagna was that I ate lasagna for the first time. I had never eaten it before. I just didn't like the look of it. And so I would say, if somebody offered me lasagna, I would say, yeah, I hate lasagna. And then one day, I don't know what it was that opened the door for me to try it. I tried it and realized, oh, I didn't hate this after all. Merino wool is is similar in that when I hear the word wool, and I think most people, when they hear the word wool, they think of, you know, like a woolly sweater, like something that's been knitted together. And that might be even a bit abrasive on the skin. My first experience of merino wool was when my husband, Brian, and I were walking the Camino de Santiago in Spain. Most of it's in Spain a few years ago, and Brian's really good at knowing what equipment you need for things. And he packs light 
when packing light is necessary. And if you're going to walk 500 miles in six weeks, you need to pack light. And so you don't want to bring too many pairs of underwear with you. And you want underwear that's going to be moisture wicking on the road and that you can wash and dry easily by hand. And so he got us two pairs of merino wool uh, underwear each. I'm like, I don't want to wear wool underwear. That's going to be abrasive. But it turns out it is simply the most comfortable underwear I've ever worn. It doesn't feel like wool at all. And it's perfect for walking the Camino. I'm proud to say that I think I still have one of those pairs of underwear seven years later. The point is not so much about the wool itself. It's the same thing in my life. I said I hated lasagna until I tried lasagna. I was resistant to merino wool until I tried it. And I honestly think lots of us are stuck in patterns where we think we don't like something or we don't want something because we've simply never tried it. I knew where you were headed with that. And I completely <laughs> agree because had you not gone there, that's where I would have taken the conversation. And it is true. The merino wool does work in the heat and the cold and it's not sticky Unbound Merino is the name of the company I bought this shirt from. <laughs> Again, I have no association with the company other than I bought the shirt from them. And it actually does deliver what it promises. So here we are, promises, delivering what we promise, keeping mm. our word, staying true to who we are, trying to expand our perception to include the differences that we resist. That's what I'm thinking about now after your comments regarding lasagna and merino wool, humorous as they were. It's also a serious note. So you've been working full time in this world of, I call it activism. I'd like for you to catch us up on that. What have you been up to? What are you learning that you didn't know two or three years ago? How are you navigating the unruly world that we are still in, and I don't yeah. know if it's more unruly than it was when you and I met eight or so years ago. Seems like it to me. What's your take on things? Well, what I get to do, what I'm, what I sort of feel like I've been invited into in my life is storytelling. And some people have called me a story activist. I like that term because activist just means somebody who is doing something for the sake of changing the world hopefully for the better, that is outside what would be the natural, ordinary course of their life. So, and then some people embrace a lifestyle of activism. But the story activism that I'm involved in is about looking at the world and asking ourselves about our perceptions of the world. Are those perceptions true and are they helpful? And Part of the question about truth is we'll never be able to know what the full truth is. It's not possible to, to know that, but you can learn more or less truth and you can go in the direction of what's helpful for the flourishing of life, starting with the needs of people who lack privilege, usually because of some sort of systemic or historic injustice in the world that hasn't been corrected yet. Any political ideology that conceives that one group of people is superior to another group of people, that's your red flag right there. That doesn't mean that we don't hold boundaries. I come from a society in the north of Ireland where lots of groups were competing with each other and, and in conflict with each other. And some of those groups chose to use violence to achieve their political ends. It didn't matter whether they were 
pro-British or pro-Irish, my judgment is they were both at best mistaken and at worst monstrous things were done. It doesn't mean those people are bad people. It doesn't mean they can't be part of the, the future of an integrated uh, society. But it also certainly doesn't mean that one group of people is superior to another group. So that's one question we need to be asking about the way we think about the world is, does this belief that I'm holding, does this story that I'm telling conceive that some people's lives are worth more than other people's lives? The second thing is, where am I in relation to this story? Frankly, what power do I have in relation to this story? So if I think about uh, situations of violent conflict in the world today, I want to ask myself, whether I'm sitting in Asheville or sitting in Belfast, who am I in relation to the power dynamics in this story? Often the answer will be not much. I, I don't have much direct influence over most things that are happening on the other side of the world. But if I'm, say, observing violent conflict that involves people from different religious traditions to the one that I come from, one thing I can do is try and find people from those religious traditions here where I am, whether it's Belfast or Asheville, and offer them some comfort if they're experiencing their people suffering. Are there things I can do with the resources that I have, the, you know, the money that's in my bank account, which is more than many and less than some? The question is not who am I in relation to Elon Musk or Bill Gates? The question is who am I in relation to the needs that I can do something about around me? And then another question, and this is one that we almost never get to, is what are the needs that I have? whether I deserve or whether they have just arrived into my life, we all have needs. We all have places where we lack competency, where we feel unable to find the answers for ourselves. We may feel isolated or lonely. There are places in my life where I just don't even know where to start to try to repair something or address something that needs to be addressed. And so the question I want to be encouraging people to ask is, getting clarity about what the needs are, and then who are the appropriate people to ask for support. Usually that comes through friendship, but I find that friendship is not an automatic thing in our world. When we used to live in villages with extended family networks, it seems to me that community was more of an everyday reality. Today, I think you have to work for community. You have to consciously choose it. And a lot of people don't know where to start. You know, Brian and I, are, we're lucky, we're blessed, we're grateful to be involved in a lot of community projects. And for me, a large part of the reason that I do that is because I need community myself. And I wrote a book about fear and storytelling because I've experienced a lot of fear myself. I'm not an expert. I'm not standing in an aloof way or I'm not intending to stand in an aloof way, you know, somehow teaching the world about my my wisdom. It's more exploring and experimenting with the things I've struggled with or the things I've been gifted with, seeing if I can share them with people and wanting them to share back and wanting us to be in this virtuous circle that expands. It's an expanding virtuous circle that we add more and more and more people to where we share our gifts and our needs. And along the way, we help people who lack resources for whatever reason, but it's usually because of some uh, injustice in the world or something that happened maybe decades or even centuries in the past that has created a vicious circle in those people's lives. People talk about virtue signaling. 
yes, any of us can be egocentric in the way we talk about what we do, right? I don't care what you think of me. If you think I'm virtue signaling by saying that someone like me should be trying to find ways to share the resources that I have not earned in order to make the world better for people who've had those resources taken away from them or never given them in the first place, I'm not looking for a medal or a prize for that. I'm just saying that's what life is supposed to be, at least partly about. We're supposed to share from the resources that we have. And the flip of it is I have needs and I need my friends and strangers to help me meet those needs. And you're one of the friends who's helped me meet those needs for conversation, for connection, for meaning. We, we sat a few feet from where I'm sitting right now a year or, or so ago, and we talked about poetry. And every time you and I talk about something meaningful, it adds something to my life that's never lost. It's never lost. This is the stuff of life. We need each other. And most of us haven't learned that or been told that. I think it's the natural thing that happens between people who connect. You and I connected a long time ago. It was an easy connection. It's remained the same all the way till now in this conversation, in this moment. I have a question I want to ask you. You were talking about people that have been marginalized or have come into bad straits because of this or that. This is a broad question. Why is human life even valuable? Is it valuable? Why do we think it is? Because there's so many of us and much of our behavior would suggest if you came from another planet and looked at us, that human life is probably the least valuable part of this world's existence. And yet we have that value as well. Why do you yeah. think it is? First of all, it depends on who you're looking at, whether or not you're seeing someone who truly embraces the honor, the glory, the beauty, the tenderness of life. And the people who cause suffering in others are often people who devalue themselves the most. I mean, they may have got to have a big kind of blustering ego, but they're not happy people. They're not happy people. And they do a lot of harm to others. Every religious and wisdom tradition that we know about has some variation on what we call the golden rule, treat others as you would want to be treated or don't treat others as you would not want to be treated. And one of the variations of that comes from, I think it was a fifth century of the common era Chinese philosopher called Mozi. In English, I think it would be spelled M-O-Z-I. If memory serves, Mozi said something like, if everybody could feel within themselves the way somebody else feels, when they suffer, we would never mistreat anybody else. If everybody could feel in themselves what their worst enemy feels when they are in grief, we would never mistreat them. I don't know the philosophical answer to why human life is valuable. I know that the fact that we can discern things like what merino wool is or what lasagna is, and other members of the animal kingdom to say they don't have as sophisticated levels of consciousness <laughs> as 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 that we can discern the impact of our own action we can forgive we can exercise mercy we can take this one thing and this other thing and be the first person to put those two things together and make a painting or a building or a conversation or a sentence 
out of these two things. I mean, that's what I understand originality to mean. There's no truly original anythings out there. What's original is when you're the first person that takes two things that's never been put together in that particular uh, way, that we can know ourselves. And yes, my understanding is also if humans weren't here, the earth would go on, the ecosystem would go on. And many people would believe that, that the ecosystem would, would do a lot better without us. There's truth to that statement, but nobody would know the beauty of the ecosystem in the way that humans can. And so I think you can look at the climate crisis uh, through the lens of a judgment on human selfishness, or you can look at it as an invitation on us to take life seriously. And if you're going to be truthful, you have to acknowledge that not every human only consciously degrades the ecosystem. There have always been many, many, many humans who have had the most gracious, tender care of the ecosystem and who have devoted their lives to the tending of the earth, of the water systems, of the soil near where they live. You know, one of my passions is not always look on the bright side. I'm not Pollyanna. Pollyanna gets an unfair rap because actually Pollyanna is not looking at terrible things and pretending that they're good. What Pollyanna is doing is she is trying to claim the best things that are possible in the midst of despair. And that's a very, very different thing. It's not looking at the world through rose-colored glasses unless rose is the true color. <laughs> that's And sometimes rose is the true color. Roses should be looked at through rose-colored glasses. <laughs> Roses do exist. We should not fall into the trap of taking the worst examples or the most selfish examples of human behavior and making them seem normative. My friend John O'Donohue used to say that headline news media too often enshrines the ugly as if it is the normal. And the normal is a lot more than just the ugly. One of the reasons I think human life has great value is because of our potential. If we rise to the goodness that we indigenously understand, the harmony that goodness allows, and let that harmony connect with the other people around us on a small scale, that's why human life is valuable, because we have that sensibility. Now, I also differ a little bit with you in terms of our place in the hierarchy of the species. Mm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. The whales probably don't care about merino wool, and yet they can communicate with subtle language across hundreds of miles with great ease. They know things that we can never know, and they may even be thinking as philosophically and as logically as we are. We don't know if whales, dolphins, and other creatures, not just those creatures, we don't know for sure if they have limitations like we often will say they have. Oh, we are the elevated species because we can do all of this. Take a dog, six months later, 3,000 miles, with no map at all, the dog shows up <laughs> on the doorstep. Maybe not 3,000, yep. but yep. some have actually. How does that dog find its way home? What, what is that dog doing? 
I can't find my way around a new city, for God's sakes. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where north is if I couldn't have a look at the stars. So I like to think that we're a part of, of a grand symphony that's being played, and that while we do have our value, our assets, our abilities, I'm not going to assume I am exclusive with my expansion, my sophistication. Other creatures may be just as evolved and conscious as we are. You can't logically disagree with the statement that we don't know what levels of sophistication exist between dogs or between whales. And so, yes, you're, I think you're right. We don't know. And I've had conversations with my, with my dog uh, before she died. <laughs> and she appears to have been trying to communicate things to me. I don't project it as a kind of a superiority thing, but as a, look, people take life seriously. We need to take life seriously and not take ourselves, by which I mean our egos. We shouldn't take our egos too seriously, but we should take life seriously. The suffering in life needs to be taken seriously and the joy of life invites to be taken seriously. And one of the things I think is a tragic thing within our current cultural, you called it unruliness, is that so much of the unruliness, not to mention the genuine suffering that is being spun out here comes from stories that are just absurd, superficial, have no connection with the actual reality of the situation. For a lot of the time, we're not fighting over anything that actually matters. We're fighting over each other's egos. And nationalism, I'm not saying nationalism doesn't matter. Nationalism is a cumulative projection of an unhealthy ego. And nationalism is not the same thing as having an integrated, let's call it a humble respect for your nation and its gifts. But a humble respect for your nation and its gifts would include telling the truth about your nation's mistakes. I don't have a humble respect for myself if I pretend that I'm perfect. I mean, Navi, even if I just stamped on your toe one day, which isn't a major infraction, but even if all I had ever done was I stamped on your toe, you said to me uh, a few years later, hey, you, you hurt me when you stamped on my toe. It would go some way if you were to acknowledge that you stamped on my toe and that you're sorry for the impact of stamping on my toe. If I were to respond to that by saying, no, I didn't stamp on your toe or worse. Uh, oh, yeah, I stamped on your toe, but it didn't hurt you. Or worse than that, you actually stamped on your own toe. It's almost an absurd example, but it's to show no sane or mature person would respond to someone saying you stamped on my toe and it hurt me by refusing to acknowledge it was true, if it was actually true. No sane and mature person would want to run away from that. I would want to say, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. Is there anything else you need from me? If you said, well, yes, you have to work in my garden for the rest of your life without pay um, because you stamped on my toe once, that's not proportionate. But there might actually be some, shall we say, repair and words that derive from the etymological root of the word repair that are completely justifiable and simply a manifestation of the operations of love and fairness. I don't know why so many people don't want to face their part. And I say their, but I really mean our part. We're all part of the ebb and flow of pain and gift. 
I don't know why so many people don't want to play our part in making amends for the impact of misdeeds, whether they were unintentional or completely unconscious, whether we directly participated in them or just inherited the fruits of those misdeeds because our parents' generation or people before our parents' generation had carried out those misdeeds. I don't know why, other than it coming down to fear rooted in the belief that something's going to be taken away from me if I acknowledge this. And that leads me to another aspect of storytelling, which is you'll feel that scarcity more if you've defined yourself as an individual in competition with other individuals. But if you have learned to see yourself as a community member in interdependent relationship with others, it's a lot easier to say, yes, you're right. You can have this. I want to share this with you. I want to share this with you. Or can you help me see what it is that I'm holding that it would be better if, if we shared it? And yeah, there may well be things that I need to give back. There may well be things that I have because they were stolen from you, even if I didn't consciously do that. Another example that may sound absurd, but I think it's really important to use examples from the potentially mundane. If it's true for the mundane, how much more true should it be for these massive issues? We both are aware of stories of where museums have discovered that the artwork that they bought at an auction turned out to have been stolen before it ended up in the auction house. At one level, those museums are within their rights. You can understand them saying, well, we bought it legitimately, so it's ours. I get that. And thankfully, there's a, a conversation uh, underway in this generation about, well, maybe that's not enough. Maybe if this painting was stolen from a family that were murdered in the Holocaust before it was sold at an auction, maybe the museum just needs to give it back to the descendants of that family and count it as a karmic gift to not demand payment for this. Maybe that would be okay. Maybe that would actually be better for everyone, including the souls of the museum. Well, or they could give the painting back to the family and ask the family to allow them to celebrate the family by leaving the painting hanging exactly where it is. Precisely. There's all kinds of creative ways that we can do this. I would imagine if I was running that museum, at the very least, I would feel better about myself. <laughs> I'm going to ask another provocative question along these lines, because we're talking about the human condition. We're talking about how we fit in, how we make our judgments. How do I behave today? Do I go right? Do I go left? Do I go forward? I don't mean politically. Where, what turns do I make? Objective morality. That came up in a conversation with a fellow recently on a podcast that I did an interview recently on, on this show, Peter Himmelman, he talked at length about objective morality. There mm -hmm. are some things that are just absolutely no doubt bad and good. It requires judgment. It requires making a stand. It requires making a call. And he was talking specifically about Israel and Hamas, and he is pro-Israel all the way. Mm -hmm. And this guy's a rock and roll musician, writes for the movies. He's been in the business a long time. He is an intellectual. Mm -hmm. He thinks about these things. He asked me, do I believe in objective morality, right, wrong? 
And I was at a bit of a loss because I said, well, I can see both sides. And he Mm -hmm. said, no, there are things that do not require that. I've made these choices. And he listed the choices that he made. When we say we want to make the world better, that requires a choice. That requires a judgment. One yeah. thing is bad. Another thing is good. Sure. I want to take sure. the bad and, and do something to make it better. So I have to mm-hmm. make a choice around what's good and what's bad in sure. order to do something better. Re- please yep. reflect on that. Help me understand this <laughs> if you can. I know it's a lot to ask. <laughs> can we get back to talking about the Merino wool? No, um, I'm not. No, no, no. Um, we are talking okay. about the Merino wool. <laughs> okay. So, you know, there are, there are philosophical and social science debates about the meaning of objectivity and language games. And I've already sort of alluded to those by saying my understanding is we'll, we'll never be able to fully know the complete truth because we're human beings and we have imperfect minds and also the same word means different things to different people uh, never mind words spoken in different languages that doesn't mean that we should not try to discern what is more true and what is less true and for me the standard around objective morality as your as your friend is talking about it is what's my impact on other people am i willing to make a commitment that i will not do harm to others Now, we can have debates until the cows come home about what the word harm means, but I'll tell you what it means. It means harm. That's what it means. (laughs) It means harm, right? And you can figure out what harm means. Yes, there are wonderful proverbs and parables. You know the parable about the man whose son falls off his horse and breaks his leg and his neighbor says, oh, what a tragedy. And the man says, who could say what is truly good and truly bad? And the next day, The army comes through town and is trying to coerce all able-bodied young men into a battle. And because this young man's leg is broken, he can't be coerced into the battle. And so the neighbor says, what a blessing. And the, the father says, who can say what is truly good or truly bad? Because the next day a flood comes into the town and the son can't run away because of the broken leg. Those stories, those quintessential stories are gifts to us. They're gifts. And that's just by way of saying we won't know the full truth and we will, different words will mean different things to different people. But come on, Nave, harm means harm. <laughs> harm means harm. And you know a lot of the time when you are doing something that will do harm. And you also know what the difference between harm and protection is. I look at the society I grew up in as a place where people decided they chose, they chose to use violence to achieve political ends. Now they will tell you that they had no choice, that they had no option. And I will listen to them and I will respect them as human beings and I will make a case that that's not accurate, that the possibilities of nonviolence had not been exhausted. They had not been exhausted. And if you study the history of nonviolence, you can see that in, in the North of Ireland, thoroughgoing nonviolent strategy was not allowed the chance to work. And what we have now actually is a nonviolent cooperation strategy that is being given a chance to work. But I don't think there's such a thing as bad people and good people. I think there are people who do bad things and there are people who do good things. And the task is to learn how to do more good things and less bad things. So when you take a situation where something monstrous has happened and people want to respond to defend themselves, it's a perfectly natural justifiable human instinct to want to protect yourself and your loved ones, especially when something monstrous happens. But you got to be careful that you don't repeat the monsterizing by your own tactics. 
you got to be careful that you're very, very discerning about what the difference between protection and revenge. And you got to start with what is the least damaging way we can achieve our ends. And I'm not speaking specifically about even recent events in the world. I'm talking about for the history of the world. At the risk of diluting things, there was a BBC sketch comedy show when I was growing up called Alas, Smith and Jones. Griff Rees, Jones and Mel Smith, two brilliant British comedians. I think it was them. Uh, this is so long ago, I may be misremembering. They had a, a sketch where they played two kind of quintessential New York cops chasing a bank robber down the street until he gets to a dead end. And they shout, don't move. And so the bank robber freezes and then they just shoot him dead. And one of the cops turns to the other and says, I can't hit them when they're moving. It's satire, but there's an element of truth to it. Growing up in the society, I grew up in a question I would ask. If you have to shoot someone, why can't you shoot them in the leg? I don't think you have to shoot people as much as people think they have to. Let me flip it and talk about something much bigger. And that's Hitler's invasion of Poland on the 2nd of September, 1939. I think it was the 2nd of September. I once heard a theological ethicist speak about this. And he said, if you wait until the day after Hitler invades Poland to ask, what am I going to do about Hitler? You've proven the human tendency to be reactive rather than to think about things over the course of the long term and reflect on what do we need to do now? And this theological ethicist said, also, if you ask me, what would I have done if I'd been the prime minister of Poland? That's a fallacious question. It's a fallacy because I'm nothing like the Prime Minister of Poland. I don't know what it's like to be a Prime Minister. I know what it's like to be a theological ethicist at a university. So he said, you got to ask me if I occupied a similar role in society at the time when Hitler was starting to come to power, what would have been the responsible and courageous most I could have done? So he says, if I'd been the Cardinal Archbishop of Munich in 1932, when the Nazi party started to arise, I could have started excommunicating every German Catholic who joined the Nazi party, saying it's incompatible with Catholicism to be part of this evil political ideology. And at a time when church membership actually was part of your social standing, your social reputation, excommunication from church might actually have been enough of a humiliation that fewer people might have joined the Nazi party or it might have had no impact whatsoever. We will never know. What we do know is that if the Cardinal Archbishop of Munich had done that, at least he could have said, I did everything I could. I did everything I could with the power and resources that I have. And so that's my view about objective morality. I don't know always what's the right or the wrong thing to do, but I usually do know what will bring more harm and what will bring less harm. And I wanna do the thing that does no harm uh, being reactive to emergencies is not the wisest place to be evolving a long-term strategy. And if you don't have people at the table, at the negotiating table, who are willing to give something with integrity to allow for the possibility that everybody can win or gain something at the end, then you don't have a peace process. So by that same token, you shouldn't judge wars by the standards of peace processes. We shouldn't have wars, but there's no point in me saying these people who are having this war right now aren't doing what peacemakers would do. They're not trying to make peace. 
I want to make peace and I want to encourage the people who make peace and I never want to diminish or devalue the suffering that anybody's experienced or the impulse to retribution. But it is possible to call out the difference between protection and retribution. It is possible to call out the difference between building a peace process over decades and just really not paying attention to that. And every now and again, something awful happens and then something awful is done in return. Bringing this home to Asheville, to where you live, tell me more about the community gathering you and Brian are organizing in Montreat. Thank you. Well, we call it the porch gathering and it's under the auspices of this little community that we get to be part of that's called the porch because a porch is a place for a great conversation. And the porch gathering happens once a year. We call it a gathering of transformative storytelling. And transformative storytelling means stories that move us from separation to connection, that move us from scapegoating to taking responsibility and seeing our part in shaping a better world. And from selfishness to community, a place of courage and creativity, of delight, of fun, where there can be depth and lightness at the same time. It runs from March the 7th to March the 10th, really the, the evening of Thursday the 7th through to late night on Saturday the 9th of March. Uh, there'll be music, there'll be, there'll be storytelling, there'll be conversation, there'll be people who are involved in trying to figure out what does it mean to live in this world that sometimes seems unruly and sometimes seems entirely beautiful. And usually it's kind of a mix of both of those things. I'm delighted, Navi, that you will be there. If people want to know more about it, the, the website is theporchgathering.com, theporchgathering.com. Someone pointed out to me that gather is an anagram of Gareth uh, or Gareth is an anagram of gather. And I love that because that's what I most love doing. Uh, well, for about 90 minutes every morning, I really love being on my own and just reading. <laughs> but the rest of the time, I love gathering with people and listening to people and sharing with people and asking. Charles Eisenstein says it's the most important question any of us can be asking each other at the moment. And that is, what is it like to be you? There's a narcissistic answer to that question, but there's also a heartfelt one, which is these are the gifts I've been given. These are the needs I have. This is the pain that I feel. This is the joy that I want to share. What about you? What about you? And if we add these two together, we'll get more than the sum of its parts. You do a lot beyond the porch gathering. I know you, you gather people together at different venues in Asheville and wherever you go, you gather people together, movies and meaning. You've produced a lot of events around movies. You do a lot of invitational showcases. Sometimes they include open mics. Can you give me a couple of thoughtful examples of the way the work that you have done has changed a life or two? I can only say how it's changed my life. As I have been privileged to share stories with communities, I've started to take my own story more seriously. When you're sharing a story in front of people and you realize they're listening to you, they're giving you the respect of the time of day, which is precious. They're taking time out of their lives. And many of them are coming with a need for something truthful. Even if the truth is, yeah, things are pretty bad, there's hope in that because if it resonates with you, you're feeling that too, then you're less alone. You're less alone. I really do think 
that there is a sacred responsibility of storytellers to be faithful to the authentic story as best they can to tell the truth and do no harm. As I've gotten more into telling stories with groups and giving talks to groups and workshops and things like that, I've started to take the story more seriously. That yes, I'm Irish, and so there's a kind of a maybe a genetic or certainly a cultural component to the fact that I talk a lot. I have a voice. My mother was a speech and, and drama teacher, so I was raised with this. But there's then a responsibility about what you do with how you choose to tell, what you choose to tell, how you choose to tell it. And there is a difference between a therapy session where you can vomit your deepest pain in an environment where you'll be facilitated with that, that's different from when you're on a platform and people need something from you. Maybe what they need is to see you vomit so they can know they're not alone too. But there's a difference between showing your scars and showing your wounds. When the wound is open, you run the risk of hurting other people. When the scar has started to heal and you can share from that place, I think that's a healthier place to share from. And you don't want to vomit on your audience. <laughs> There's a difference between doing that and showing the truth about the story as you experience it. So in closing, I would like to ask you to do one more thing for me, please. Reflect briefly on the power of an invitation. <laughs> but what's on your mind when you say that? I like to be invited to the party. You invited me to come be part of yeah. the porch gathering. It felt yeah. good to be invited. Yeah. You know, invitation is maybe one of the words I use the most because an invitation is not coercion. It's not you have to be there or you're in trouble if you don't. How many of us have had the experience where we weren't invited to a party and we found out about it later? or We weren't chosen for the team. And we knew it in the moment and it's painful. And then the power of someone who sees us and says, yes, come on in, come on in, come on in. One of my favorite movies, The Shop Around the Corner with Jimmy Stewart, set in Hungary. There's a gorgeous moment in that film. This is about the gift of the invitation to the person doing the inviting, right? So it's Christmas night, it's Hungary, it's snowing. There's an elderly man who's quite lost and has had very great trauma in his life lately. And he wants to take people out for a lovely banquet Christmas dinner at his favorite restaurant. But none of his employees in the small department store that he works in are available. They all have other plans. He discovers Rudy, the teenage boy who's like a messenger boy, has nowhere to be that night. And the joy that Mr. Matichek has in realizing I can invite Rudy to come for dinner and I will give him the best dinner that he's ever had. And that's where the invitation works both ways. That if you have the power of making the invitation, you can give a gift to somebody by making an invitation that more than pays you back for the expensive dinner you're going to take them for. And what I wish for is that we would step into a world where we would say to people, the door is always open. There's room for you at the table. The only rule is don't harm anybody. And if you can't let go of your desire to harm people or even the unconscious harm that your ideology is doing to people, then you can't sit at the table. You can't be in the room with these people that you might harm. But we will still send people out to go and talk to you and engage with you. We're just not going to wait 
for you. We're just not going to wait. We are going to live into the world that we feel called to live, that this world is worthy of. This world is worthy of human beings taking life seriously enough. And so are you, and so am I. Gareth Higgins, I think that's a perfect place to close on. So thank you for coming once again, sharing some time with me. I really appreciate it. It's so good to have this time with you, Nave. The conversation always helps me. Appreciate you very much. So there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Gareth Higgins. And in the spirit of storytelling, I have something to take us up to the top of the hour I think you'll like. I just received a sound file from Steve Rush in Denver. Steve and I got together last summer, and I recorded the audiobook version of 100 Days Poems After Cancer. Steve was very precise. He wanted me to keep recording until I got everything right, and right for Steve meant the rough sound file draft. I told Steve I was in no hurry for the sound file, and asked him to take his time and do what he felt like was necessary to bring 100 days up to his professional level. So last week he sent me the almost final draft. He asked me to go over it one more time to see if there was anything I wanted changed. And after that he would do the final tweaks and the 100 days audiobook would be ready to go. I've listened to some of the tracks and I think we're very close. So what I would like to do is offer you some of the audiobook of 100 days to take us to the top of the hour. 100 days contains 100 poems I wrote back to back over a 100 day period after I had prostate surgery. It's about healing. So we'll start with poem number six, Elemental Sense. Spring invites purpose. What appears today will not appear tomorrow. Elemental sense of order, fog, sleet, rain, wind, freeze, thaw, gain, loss, life, death, night, day. Elemental sense of disorder. Big game hunters stalk the tiger, raise their rifles, fire, miss, aim, fire again. The tiger vanishes into the undergrowth. The hunters lure their long barrels. I am a part of the ooze humanity makes. I walked more today than yesterday. A heavy frost will fall after midnight. Here's your question. What precautions do you take when illness aims, fires, misses, and aims again? Seven. I had to look. Just before dawn, in a half-awake dream, I climbed down my spine, one bone at a time, into unfamiliar territory. I saw veins, arteries, cells, blood, connective tissue, nerves, lungs, liver, kidney, urethra, and bladder. As I descended, I realized I was in a rainforest filled with creatures I didn't expect to see. Iguanas, bats, lizards, snakes, scaly-tailed squirrels, toucans, fairy bluebirds, and butterflies. Beautiful, graceful, complicated butterflies. I'd never imagined millions of butterflies were free inside my body. A purple butterfly landed on a bush, then another red with pink dots, then another with big brown eyes. I arrived at my pelvis. I stood between my hips. I thought, blades and fingers have invaded me. As I surveyed the cavernous territory inside my butterfly-filled body, I saw repair. Nothing to weep about here, I thought. 
With that, I climbed up my spine one bone at a time. This afternoon, Dr. Donaldson called. He said, your margins are clear. The cancer has not spread. Here's your question. Do you dream in stories or snippets? Eight, time after time. Thirteen metal staples ladder down my belly. Ninety steps rise up six flights of stairs to John Van Hassel's flat in Paris, which I have traveled to each year since 1985. But not this year. I have other things to do. Today I took my first walk down the drive. I considered the new peas and garlic in the raised vegetable beds. I walked past three goats, two horses, and five mockingbirds chattering in an apple tree. I returned to the porch and opened my laptop. Martini, the cat, strolled around the corner. A would-be thumped my screen. I streamed time after time on TSF Jazz, Ile de France. When Tish opened the screen door, I said, I'm pretending I'm in Paris. Here's your question. Where does your imagination wander when you long for something you can't have? Nine, tumbling of my seasons. There are times when magic slips into your sleep and becomes part of the stories you tell. Last week, Dr. Donaldson opened my belly and removed my prostate. The earth shook, shuddered, cracked, and spun. Luscious new shoots rose between my ribs. I became a marsh near the edge of a sea. Rainbows floated over the waves into the tumbling of my seasons. And here's your question. Is it possible to practice childlike wonder when joy seems beyond your reach? 10. My first night out. Last night I slipped on jeans and a sweater. Slowly I lowered myself into my Camry. Tish steered down the drive, turned left. Off we went to Lake Eden for a dinner party hosted in a beautiful barn where two jazz guitarists played big band tunes and torch songs. A storm thundered over the mountains. Hail and rain pounded the tin roof. The guitarist played deep purple. I nibbled trout and salad. My belly was sore. When the party ended, Tish drove us home. I went to bed and drifted to sleep. Dawn came full of bees, valley fog, and a pileated woodpecker the size of a crow flying above the ridge looking for grubs in the dead trees. Here's your question. Can you describe what you remember the last time you let your guard down? 11. Splashing Rhythms Although I walked easier and faster yesterday, I'm not interested in becoming an express train or Learjet. I like the slow pace of ambling along railroad tracks or paddling a canoe across a salt marsh. I want to take my time while I admire great blue herons gliding over brackish water, slow wing beats, sinuous necks, long sharp bills. I want to pop my paddle on the surface and make rhythms 
Like the djembe rhythms the rainbow tribes make, their shadows spinning around and around until their toes tell a deeper story than their tongues could ever say. Skin is their currency, night is their day, smoke is their language. When the noon train whistled up the valley, I thought, good things happen when you give yourself over to the tracks. I'll bet I'm not the only one who likes to walk the rails. Here's your question. Describe a time when you gave yourself over to what you wanted to do. Are you pleased or do you regret your decision? 12. Pareidolia Sky While relaxing in my chair, Brubeck's Take 5 reminded me of my college days. A.D. and Tish stared at their laptops. Rain spilled over the hills. The wood stove blazed. Branches tapped the windows. A.D. announced his respect for people who disarm old landmines. Tish wrote a sestina. I touched the staples on my belly and concluded there was time to love, time to live, time to watch elephants fly in the Pareidolia sky. Here's your question. Pareidolia is when you perceive an image in a random visual pattern, like a cloud that looks like an elephant. What specific images have you noticed in random places? 13. A Good Pig Dogwoods bloomed beside A.D.'s wind-worn shed where a brown wooden sign over the door said, Sweet Surrender. Thirteen days ago, I could hardly move. Today, I drove to the grocery, made tea, washed dishes, and laughed at Tish's new poem, How to Find a Good Pig. I napped in the sun and dreamed of living by the sea in a cottage with wind chimes and blue tiles. I woke and thought, I'm content for now on this hillside where doors swing open, chocolate waits on the table, and I can chuckle about what it takes for one to find a good pig. Here's your question. Have you found any good pigs lately? Can you name them? And so there you go, a sample of my audiobook, 100 Days, Poems After Cancer. It's not out yet. We're still working on it. I just thought you'd like to hear a little bit of it. If you would like to order the book, you can go to jamesnave.com, and there you will find it on the homepage. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. The music that you heard at the end of each poem was composed by Walter Parks, who also composed the theme song you hear on Twice Five Miles Radio each week. And on that note, hey, thank you for listening to my audiobook, and thank you for hearing what Gareth had to say about doing no harm and other thoughts on life. And on that note, I'll say you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7. 
streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, and thank you, Walter Parks, for contributing all that music to the audiobook. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Devine Dio, for managing WPVMFM in Asheville. Thank you, Robin Collier, for managing KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio in Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to remind you that we are sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing chops, you can always visit imaginativestorm.com. If you'd like to reach me, I'd love to hear from you. Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave spelled N-A-V-E. So, there you go. Once again, we've come to the end of the show. I hope you tune in again sometime soon. Till then, maybe I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.